Uh, I'm going to want to introduce to you Dr. <coughs> Dr. Jeff Wilson. Uh, we've had him here twice before in our church. Uh, he is a veterinary surgeon by profession, but he's also a polar explorer. Uh, he holds a number of world records, not just because he's crazy, because he's inspiring, okay. He's done the longest solo unsupported crossing of Antarctica, which you'll talk about tonight, which included the first summit of Dome Argus. Who knew what Dome Argus was before today? Yeah, okay, not me either. Okay, we're all learning geography at the same time as being inspired about resilience. Uh, he holds the record for the longest land journey ever by kite across the Sahara Desert. This guy loves kite surfing. Uh, he, he was the first guy to kite surf across the Torres Strait between Australia and Papua New Guinea. Now, you told us last time, Jeff, I'm not sure, th did you go across there with your future son-in-law who, who was going out with your daughter about halfway across the Torres Strait, which is what, how many hours to do that? Three days, okay, about... He's like, I want to give up. And you said, if you give up, you can't marry my daughter. Is that true? Okay, that, that's the standard I'm going for right there. That's just awesome. So he holds that record as well as the fastest solo unsupported crossing of the Antarctica coast to coast through the South Pole. Last time he was here, he was uh, telling us that he was raising money and planning to, to do the journey that he just did uh, uh, just under 12 months ago. So Dan, I want you to stand, put your hands together as we welcome uh, to the, the stage, Dr. Jeff Wilson. Am I on there? Can you hear me now? Got me. Awesome. Grab a seat. So good to be in here. So many good looking young faces tonight. We had uh, an amazing time this morning, and uh, Pastor John alluded to a story earlier, and I think I'll finish that story because it sounds a bit harsher than it was. But <laughs> Simon was this beautiful 21-year-old. He was dating my 16-year-old daughter at the time. He'd been a male model and been all over the world, so not the guy any dad wants to date their daughter. I knew he'd been up to no good. Um, then he became a Christian and decided that he wanted to turn over a new leaf and date my daughter. So uh, I'm a vet by trade and I took him out for dinner, brought my father's surgical kit from when he was away and I said, listen, you, you can date my daughter but we're going to do a little snippy snip and uh, you'll have to pee like a girl and then the night before your wedding night we'll do another snippy snip and we're all back to functioning again. And uh, he was so in love with my girl that he looked at me, he took a heavy swallow, thinking I was serious, which I was, <laughs> and agreed to the terms. Um, about six months later, we're in the middle of the Torres Strait, and we're 70 kilometres from Papua New Guinea after a brutal three-day crossing with uh, crocodiles. We had sharks following the last guy every time. There were many ways to die out there. And he finally decided in his 21-year-old brain that he was done. This is it. And I'm kiting on, and my wife had said to me, you kill Simon, you do not come home. Your, your daughter is in love with him, do not get him killed. And I said, listen, there's never a guarantee on these things. I'll, I'll do my best. He's in the water, and I look over my shoulder, he's gone. And I, I talked to Frenchie, this uh, professional female kiter. I said, Frenchie, we've got to turn around. Let's go back upwind. So we're beating upwind. So I'm in a pretty bad mood by the time I get to him. And I'm in the water next to him. We're shaking our legs out. Go, What's going on? I said, mate, I, I'm done. I can't move. 
and I'm like, Simon, I know you feel done, but there's this safety mechanism in every one of our brains which trips out like a fuse switch on a house when you overload the circuitry and it comes in 30% early. You need to trick your brain and tell it that you're carrying on because you got 30% left. And besides, if you want to marry my daughter, you're going to get to Papua New Guinea. So fast forward seven years later, we're on the Greenland Plateau, we're a team now. We're trying to break the record for the fastest crossing of Greenland from the bottom end of the dog year right up to a little village of Kanak, the most northern settlement on planet Earth. 18 brutal days. Not once during that journey did that boy think about tapping out. So over a seven year period, he took on the things that we're going to talk about tonight and had a radical conversion in his ability to withstand torment. He withstood storms, things called pitteracks that race across the Greenland ice plateau. He had blisters down to the bone on his feet. He'd put his boots on with no complaint. He pushed day after day after day. We covered more kilometers, 1120 kilometers in one calendar week. No one's ever done that before as a duo. So this boy learned some things and came out on top. So uh, what I want to say to you young ones tonight is we have a lack of resilience in our country today. And it's leading to the death of our loved people because they're tapping out early. This morning I had a real word of knowledge that someone down south was about to make that decision. So I'll call you tonight, if you're going through hardship, there's a reason it's there. It's building character in you so that you can get to your Domargus, so that you have the strength to have your best day. When I think of my childhood, I look at my darkest times, um, winding back a bit. My mum was on anti-malarials in East Africa when I was in the womb. Those anti-malarials we now know stop the plates of the face coming together. There's four major plates in a baby's face. One of those plates didn't move correctly because of the anti-malarials. So I was born with an axe wound in my face as a cleft palate. Over the next 15 years, I had six surgeries, including bone grafts from my hip, bone in the face, multiple surgeries, and I learned this incredible skill. It was a skill where I could compartmentalize pain and stay in this little positivity bubble, almost floating along like Yoda next to the real me. <laughs> and I could see the pain I was in, but I was in this little positive bubble. And that's how I managed to get through operation after operation. 2013, 2014, I was on an Antarctic crossing and I had a kite accident where the kite self-launched and took off with all of my supplies disappearing across the ice plateau and I ran and jumped on the sled. If I hadn't got on the sled, I would have died. The sat phone was gone, the tent was gone, all the food was gone, I would have died of exposure. Managed to get on the sled and the kite's going crazy and eventually by sheer miracle, it nicked the only piece of metal on the bottom of the sled and cut all four strings. The next day, the kite that I lost was the perfect kite for the conditions the next day. So I didn't have that, it was gone. I flew a bigger kite and that meant that it was riding higher in the sky and kept lifting my jacket out of my pants. Over the period of 16 hours, I completely froze my midsection. Over the next two weeks, I suffered severe frostbite and most nights would cut away bits of flesh with my uh, pen knife. During those times, a normal human being would probably have gone, time to go home. 
but I was in this little positivity bubble, just like I was as a boy, realizing that those incredible valleys as a kid brought me to a point where I was one of the loneliest men on earth doing what I was good at, doing what I loved, and learning from those valleys to have my highs now. So absolutely tonight, we're going to talk about a journey first, and I want you to understand that in my career, I've done some tough journeys, but this one trumps them all. It was absolutely brutal. I've shed more tears on this journey than at any other point in my life. My wife, I think, thought that I had turned into putty down there because I seemed to spend most of the time on the phone to her crying. Um, so the hard man was gone. I was vulnerable, I was real, and it's the only way I got through this thing. So let's go through some of those uh, tough times. There were three really bad days, and then we're going to go into unpacking how do we build more resilience as Christians and as non-Christians. And the other thing, before I do that, you can absolutely apply these four things into your life as a non-Christian, and you see a radical conversion in your ability to persevere through hardship. It will change your attitude to challenge, and it'll give you the ability to run at what I call lines in your life. So a line is anything that's coming to maraud you or destroy what you have. With these resilience lessons, you can run at that line. But at the end of the day, it will be empty. If you apply Christianity and a belief in Jesus Christ, your Savior, over the top, it's the V8, the big engine throb, throb that you need to get through life. And there's no other way I would ever go into the wilderness without it. The guys I really respect that I meet in the wilds are those guys who are out there with no faith. I cannot understand what they're doing out there. They need to go home and watch Netflix because it is not a safe place to be without a faith. Absolutely. So tonight, this journey, if we go onto that first map, guys, just to give you an understanding of the size of this continent, you can fit Australia into here about 2.25 times. So it's massive. The, the journey was to get from the furthest point away from the pole through and then all the way out to here, but I could not get permission to get into that sector. So it meant there was a new wind flow that we found circulating back towards Novo, but to get across into it, I had to cross a dead zone with no wind, the highest point on the Antarctic Plateau and the coldest naturally occurring place on planet Earth, a very, very dangerous place to be when the temperatures can get down to around minus 90 on a bad day. So going on, um, if, I, if I go to the first day where I realised things were going to be tough, you kind of want that day to be halfway or at least to the end of a journey. You don't want it to be day two. <laughs> That's not a good day to realise things are going to be tough. I pulled my glove off after a particularly hard day at the office and uh, this is what it looked like. You can just see here that these two fingers are going black. It's hard with the colouring of the tent. Over the next few days, they degraded further, started to swell and were unusable, and then eventually went absolutely rock hard and black. My understanding of frostbite uh, was pretty good because I'd lost some of my midsection in the years before, so I knew that I was probably going to lose those fingers, bone would be sticking out. To continue the journey, I would have to self-amputate. So not a good thing to happen on day two. The amazing miracle down there is that nothing heals in Antarctica. You can have a blister that'll be there for three months. There's no way that skin cells can leapfrog in 2% humidity. 
minus 50 degrees Celsius. It just doesn't happen. But somehow, I managed to regrow two fingers. By the end of the journey, they were fully functioning fingers. It just doesn't happen in a polar environment. So rock, blockade number two is on the side of Domargus. I'd had to turn away from my challenge to the pole because I'd lost fuel. The vibration of the sled over Sestrugi, which are ice sledges, uh, was banging the sledge and breaking the fuel bottles, opening them up. So I turned for the, the dome, and I'm at 13,000 feet. There was a radical change in the snow quality. We'd gone from hard pack to suddenly this fluffy snow that you just could not physically drag a sled through. It was taking me 15 to 17 hours to take one sled forward two kilometres, ski back, and then pull the other one. With full physical effort, you were inching these sleds forward. And I did the math and realized that in the natural, without a miracle here, I was not going to make it home because I was in what we call the do not retrieve area. It was an area that the Russian support team had said, listen, you're above the height that we can get an aircraft to you. We'll be able to land, but we won't be able to take off. So in this area, you're going to have to get home under your own steam. So I called my beautiful wife, Sarah, and she is an amazing woman. She's very, very patient. Uh, but she does give me the odd slap to the head when she knows that I need it. But she was very gentle with me on this one, which was appreciated, and uh, said, listen, absolutely, I, I, I know you feel like you're done. I know you feel like you can't go on. But can I ask you just to double your calories tonight and sleep eight, eight hours? And I think for all of us, if we ever get to a point in any journey, whatever your dream is, where you think, I'm done. I, I, I just can't take this anymore. I'm going to tap out. I'll just ask you to remember this story and go, listen, let's just slow it down, double your calories and have eight hours sleep. Everything looks better in the morning. <laughs> so the next day, I put my boots on and realised I had a little bit more in me, managed to drag the sled another two kilometres forward. And then that night, I drew a line in the, in the snow where I prayed the wind would swing to because at the moment it was coming off the dome and I couldn't make headway into it. When you understand what catabatic wind is, catabatic wind is that cold wind that comes off a glacier and it runs from high altitude downhill. Antarctica, all of the wind runs along gradient lines, so you, you very rarely get wind going uphill. It just doesn't happen. The wind I needed had to go uphill. It had to go the last 120 kilometres, which... Man hauling at 17 hours per 2K is a very long way mentally. But when you're under kite power, I knew I could do it in a single day. So I went to bed that night, got into my sleeping bag and just prayed for a miracle win. So fatigued that I knew that I couldn't calculate it just by looking. So I drew a line in the snow, put a ski pole next to it with a bit of cloth on it and knew that the cloth was 180 degrees the wrong direction. By morning, I needed it to be over this line. Woke up, unzipped the tent fly, and you must understand at this point, you are the most broken human. Every joint creaks. You feel fatigue beyond belief. You wake up after eight hours sleep feeling like you've not had a rest at all. And you roll over, unzip the tent, and the miracle has happened. The streamer is over your line, exactly lined up. It couldn't have lined up anymore. And you, you're just sitting there understanding we serve a God that gets into our dreams. He's like, if this guy is stupid enough 
to put himself in this position, well, I'm going to throw him a bone. <laughs> so tonight, if you feel like your dream or whatever it is you're in is silly or God's not going to be interested, he's not going to get a hand in it, that's an absolute fabrication. He delights in the dreams of his children. Just the same way we as dads and mums get so excited when a little one comes to us with, I want to be an astronaut or I want to be a ballerina, whatever it is. You're like, yeah, sure, honey, you can be whatever you want to be. You want to lift that dream up. You know, understanding that we serve a God that is interested enough to look at this veterinarian from the Gold Coast, got himself in a bit of trouble on the side of an ice ridge, possibly the most isolated man on earth. We realized when I got to the top of the dome, the nearest human to me was actually in the Mir space station overhead, a cosmonaut, Russian cosmonaut. He was the closest human to me. So you cannot get more isolated. You cannot feel more alone. But this is the supercharge of the Christian faith, the supernatural advantage in any harsh situation. I don't understand guys putting themselves in that situation without that supernatural advantage. It's just foolish. So day 41 passes. Carrying on um, to day 56. So I make it over the dome. It's the long run home now. And there were multiple miracles on that run home. There was a ridge line of no pressure, no air pressure that we knew below the dome. And it was basically two ripples and then into these ice features that no human had ever crossed before called mega dunes. Now a mega dune is where for some reason you can't see it from the air, the ice ripples and the ripples will be two kilometers apart. So imagine a frozen ocean with waves that are half a kilometer high that is just frozen. So I strayed into them and you have these incredible downs like a roller coaster and then incredible ups, but there's not meant to be a lot of wind in there. Amazingly, I had wind carry me all the way through the dead zone, out the other side. Every time I felt I was absolutely done in and broken, I would wake up again with a supernatural regeneration of the mind, the body, the spirit, my feet, and continue on. My mileage kept getting more and more and more. Most polar journeys, by the end of the journey, the polar explorer is finished. I seem to get stronger and stronger and stronger to the point that when I finished, I was disappointed. I wanted more distance. It's incredible. So how does that happen? Jamaican bobsled team kind of stuff. I'm 80 kilos, dripping wet. I was 49, three kids at home, multiple vet practices that we run as a business. A lot going on. Most people don't go to Antarctica with a mortgage because if you die, you're leaving your wife a headache. We had plenty of mortgage, and I thought about it on the worst nights, trust me. So I really was cool running to the Jamaican bobsled team. We're pulling tyres on the beach, go down there and smashed every polar record, the endurance records, the distance records, cross, cross ground that has never had human foot on it. So tonight, if I can do that, if I can pass resilience on to Simon, a boy who I love dearly now, but he has been through hell and back. You don't get resilience without some pressure. So tonight we're gonna to talk about applying pressure and how to do that. Before we do that, let's quickly, I think we've got time for this video, that'd be awesome. So this I will talk through just to explain what it is. We play that video, guys. So this is Dave.
This is day 56. I've strayed into a crevasse field, which is ice that is broken and it gets a light dusting over the top and you know immediately when you see one that you could die as you cross it. There's no choice. I've got to hit it as hard as I can, as fast as I can. Probably the skis will go over and then the sled will break the top of the ice cap and pull me in backwards. So once you see ice with no snow cover, you know that there's a drop off. Just to the right, there's a thousand foot drop off that I'm trying to get past. You can see the ice beginning to crack here. That's the beginning of crevasses that are gonna get wider. I'm trying to get around this mountain and then down to the right. The sleds keep flipping. We had to edit out some bad language. Um, I'm not, not that saintly after all. That's about the third time they've flipped. You can see the sleds are about to break up. They're all uh, made out of very expensive Kevlar, but they were tired and nearly done in two days before the end of the journey. And then uh, you'll see coming in here to uh, an ice cap or a, or a snow bridge over a crevasse. This is a crevasse coming up here. We've just crossed, crossing one there. That could go at any time. A second one here. Those things went on and on and on. This clip here, right now I see one that has an open top and I try and baseball slide the sleds and they flip past me and go off the edge of the lip. So it was a miracle that they didn't break through that snow bridge and pull me down into the hole. Thinking, this is what the inside of a crevasse looks like. So I met this guy, beautiful Brazilian guy, who drove a tractor with six guys sleeping in it. They were very lucky it got wedged about eight metres down. If you look at that image, let's go to that next one, guys. This is safe ice here. This is a snow bridge that is sagged and you've got safe ice on the other side. Thinking that if the sleds hit it and they didn't go through it, I'll be able to walk onto it to grab my sleds. The first step I took, going to the next image, that's straight into blue ice. So you could fall for half a minute before you hit the deck. That thing could be the size of the Q1. So it was a miracle that I got through that section. 42 crevasses over two hours and stress like I have never felt before. Somebody honks me at the lights and I'm like, yeah, go, whatever. <laughs> I've had worse than you, buddy, seriously. It gives you a new perspective on road rage. Um, so this image is one that just brings all the emotion back for me. I got to Thor's Hammer. This is the point that I, I passed. It was the start of my journey. I was 240 kilometers from the Russian base and I just broke down. I realized so many times I had laid out the fleece. I tested God's patience. I had really pushed it this time. This journey was more than any other journey. It had more near-death experiences than all the rest put together. And he was gracious enough to carry me the whole way through. Absolutely. But for the rest of my life, the resilience lessons that I learnt on this journey were ones that I'd learnt in the Torres Strait, in the Sahara Desert. The Sahara journey, we had 13 men, all strong men. Nine of them had emotional and physical breakdowns, mainly because of the landmines. Uh, before we went in there, there were four tourists um, who'd had their heads beheaded by Al-Qaeda bandits. Um, I had a kite up, I was bugging, and we had a Land Rover come in with four Al-Qaeda members in it with an AK-47, and they were looking at me, and I thought, this is it, I'm going to be on YouTube with a black bag over my head. 
So I've been through some strain. I've been through some stress, but nothing like this journey. So tonight, I want to develop in you four tenets that will be equally applicable. You don't have to have this sort of stress in your life. But if, you, if you're breathing, if you're breathing today, there is challenge coming. And wouldn't you want to run to it and meet it rather than lay there like a lamb? You want to run at that challenge. I want you to be a lion killer by the end of tonight. So when you see that lion coming, you protect your family, you protect your business, you protect your, your beliefs, you stand for something. So for you young ones tonight, you're going to be a dangerous crowd to hang around. Absolutely. Okay, so what is resilience for, for all of us? The ability to recover quickly from difficulties or toughness. The ability of a substance or object to spring back into shape. Elasticity. How well are we going to spring back when this COVID thing is over? I don't think we're more than about a third of the way through. And if we mentally prepare for an endurance race on this, take some of the heat out of the situation. Just calm, be kind to yourself. This is not going to be over quickly. But develop resilience. This next season is a perfect time for you to use these four things tonight to develop some resilience into your life so that you come out of this ready to go. Absolutely bounce out of it. Okay, this is probably uh, not the weight loss program I would suggest for you, but this is what an Antarctic journey will do to the human body. So pudgy 87 kilos on the left, trying to stack some weight on, and then 58 days later, 17 kilos lost, not a scrap of fat, and the first time I had abs, I, I couldn't keep them though, they seemed to disappear again. <laughs> okay, bunch of records, we talked about them, let's skip through them. Um, I'm aware that tonight, this is the meat, and I've got 10 minutes left to try and impart this into you. So. We're going to really simplify it. If we can go to that window of tolerance slide. This is a window of tolerance. Is that part of your life where you feel comfortable? You feel like the king or queen of your domain. You understand everything that's asked of you within that window of tolerance. You don't feel stressed. Outside that window of tolerance is where you are stretched. And... The unfortunate thing is a lot of our young people have been taught that you stay in your window of tolerance. Don't step out. Don't climb the tree and get hurt. Don't take a risk. It's a dangerous place to be, and my belief is that this is why we have a, an epidemic of depression, anxiety, lost dreams, loss of weight. Too long in this place. The idea is for you to step in and out of your window of tolerance and to stretch it over time. And we... We joked this morning that if your biggest stress in your life and you get upset if somebody serves you your coffee and it's five degrees too cool or they've used soy milk and not cow's milk, then your window of tolerance is way too small. We need to do some work tonight so that you can just drink that coffee with a smile, give them a thumbs up and understand that you've been through more and you are going to go through more. So how do I stretch that window of tolerance? Shawnee, was it Shawnee who was up earlier? Shauna, she spoke beautifully and she used language which is vulnerable and open. One of the biggest single ways to stretch your window of tolerance is to start using this language, start to be more open. And for the guys in the room, the hard man is the first guy to crack. 
some of the toughest men that I've ever met have been the first to crack. On the first flight to Antarctica, there was a Frenchman who was built, he was out of the, um, the Foreign Legion, built like a brick outhouse. He had uh, been the first Frenchman to the North Pole, had all beautiful gear. I was in secondhand gear. I was dragging a set of boobs for McGrath Foundation. I was in pink. I looked like a pansy on the aircraft. There were 10 guys going to a place called White Desert and they had a betting syndicate. They all bet on the Frenchman except for one guy. And the only reason he bet on me, we, he had a best friend called Lexi who was dying in a Cape Town hospital of breast cancer. And he wrote Lexi on a balloon, a pink balloon, and asked me to blow it up and let it go from the South Pole. And I stuck it in my jumpsuit and said, sure, I'll do that. But he didn't bet on me because I was the tough guy. It was kind of a sympathy vote. Day 17, probably winding back even to that, day three of that journey, the most vicious storm in 50 years to hit the Antarctic coast hit us both. We were three kilometres apart, both in very similar tents, both with similar education, understanding of how to survive an Antarctic storm. That storm went for four days, the toughest four days of my life. I made the phone call to Sarah during that storm saying, I'm not coming home from this one. And we spoke about that discussion earlier. She was not a happy girl. Slapped me about the head and got me moving, got me working again, and I survived the storm. The day the storm finished, I was moving again. I was off, on my goal. The Frenchman took three days to recover. By the time the second storm came in, I was 240 kilometres away. He was five kilometres away. And he got smacked again. Day 17, he put his hand up in the middle of the crevasse field that I'd walked through. He could see my tracks and ask for a pickup. So the toughest guy in the room is not the guy with the hard language, the hard exterior. It's the vulnerable one that's willing to be open, willing to be honest, willing to talk to his wife, let, him, let her know how he's feeling. The thermostat is getting released. We talked about it this morning about a boiling kettle. If you just crank that lid on, that thing is going to blow and for us men, vulnerability and open language, emotional strength, lets that pressure off. How many men do you know in your life who never tell anyone how they're feeling and then suddenly they crack? It's all over, like an egg, just spilling its guts out. So tonight, it's also for you women, like you, you're way better at it than we are, but you can still be guilty of the faces. Pull those faces off, the real strength and the opening of your window of tolerance comes from vulnerable language. This one is absolutely important, and I'm going to take a little bit of time shortly just to do a case study. So think of your dream. What is your dream? What is your why? Why are you here tonight? Why are you doing what you're doing? If you don't have a dream that is your hairy, audacious goal, then you need to get one. Absolutely, we understand that if you're not dreaming, you're not living. It scares me the number of young people that I go up to and go, okay, what is your dream? What is your hairy, audacious goal? And they look at me blankly as though um, I just think breathe in, breathe out. That's all I'm, that's all I'm doing in here. And I'm like, man, I, I need to slap you or get the cattle prod and go, I, need, I can give you a dream. I want you to dream. I want to fire you up. If you don't have a dream tonight, somebody around you cattle prod them until they give you a dream. Absolutely. There's scripture on this, so you have no excuse. Joel 2, 28, 
and afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. So our sons and daughters need to dream. It's an absolute scriptural must. In the last days, God says, this is Acts 2, 17, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Okay, last corner, sorry, third last, second last corner of the window. Who is your coach, your advocate? In your life tonight, as a young person especially, if you have a dream, you're very open and honest about your discussion but you don't have someone in your corner who massages your shoulders every time you get your nose boxed. You go back in, they give you a squirt of water, tell you, Let's go back out there. They might be thinking, watch her get her face kicked in, but they are there for you. They believe in you and they're pushing you back into the fight. If you don't have someone like that in your life, you need to find someone, stick onto them like a limpet, like a barnacle to a rock and suck all the moisture out of them. If you don't have someone that you can call in the middle of the night, use vulnerable language with and say, I'm not doing too well. That's your coach. That's your advocate. You have one in Christ. He, he died for you. He was the ultimate coach, ultimate advocate. We follow, we emulate his love for people, his behavior. The greatest of these is love. He is our love coach. He teaches us how to love those around us. John 14, 25, 27. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I live with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as, to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So your Advocate on this earth is the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. You have a supernatural advantage in that, but if you don't have... A human advocate or coach, please get one. If you don't understand what it means, talk to me directly or talk to one of the pastors and say, how do I get a coach in my life? Your ability to push through hardship will go up by a factor of 10 if you get a coach in your life, a mentor, someone you can stick to. So, okay, last thing on the right-hand side here, hormesis. Hormesis is a process that I use every day in my body, especially now that I am, I'm actually north of 50, I, I've turned 50 in May, so I've crept slightly older than Pastor John now. Your body doesn't recover as quickly as you get older, so it takes more training, more hard work, you suffer punishment, but that is teaching your cells to stay strong, to stay fit, to stay rigid. I use it with rock climbing in that I want my skin to get nearly abraded by climbing, and then you go away, and overnight your body's like, okay, this guy needs more skin, it grows more skin, and then it's tougher for the next day's climbing. Spiritually, we are at risk of sitting in a soft place. If we understand that it is necessary for you to go through trials, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. This is James 1, 2 to 4. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Read resilience there. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So what that is saying is you need to be stretched, bent, pulled. If you are sitting in a soft place for too long, 
you will not be complete. Your faith will not develop further. So hormesis is an absolute must for you. I'm going to go back to yeah, this window. Keep that on there for me. So tonight we are really close to time, but I really want you to understand that if you are in a hard place tonight and you feel like your energy levels are low, you feel like you've been up against it, there's been sickness in the family, there's been challenge at work or business, you can stretch your tolerance. You probably can't change the hardship much, but you can change your perception and your response to it. But also be kind to yourself. We are in a tough time as a nation. We're in a tough time as people. And when I looked at my hand at the end of the first week, I was trying to understand why was I breaking down so much? Why was I, previously I felt bulletproof. Why on this journey particularly did I feel like even if I got to the first objective, that would be enough? I was ready to pack it in. And then I realized, Jeff, you froze your hand on day two. Give yourself a break. So tonight, if you're looking at your hand figuratively and you've got two fingers that might need to come off, then understand you've been during you know, a tough time. It's been 100 years since our people have been through this stuff. So be kind to yourself. But also understand, if you can speak with language that is open and honest and vulnerable, you'll stress that window. If you can pin your life around a dream, and if you don't have one, make sure you get one. You pick an advocate that you trust and you can call using vulnerable language at midnight. Do that. And understand that your body needs to be hammered by blows. That's how we teach it to be tough. And if you're not toughening yourself now in the middle of a COVID epidemic, then you need to start. Absolutely. Because there's storms coming, not just this one. And I know when a storm is building, you get this intense scream as it's building on the other side of the ice. And you can feel it coming. The barometric pressure drops. The hair on your back of your neck sticks up. And your survival comes down to how well you prepare. These four things applied in your life will prepare you for hardship beyond measure. You will stand in the storm and go, is that all you've got? Throw this at me. I'm ready for you. Absolutely tonight. I want you to go out there and be a lion killer. And tonight, if you've got a dream, I was hoping to pull someone up. Alex, I was going to embarrass you, but we'll let you off the hook tonight. Put your dream up in this corner and go, okay, the language I can change, I can practice. Who's my coach? Write down a list of coaches and be bold. Pick the best person in that field in the country. I picked Borg Usland as my coach, my advocate. He held more polar records than any other human alive at the time. And he said yes to a little-known polar explorer at the time on the Gold Coast. Final thing, understand that it's going to take work. It's going to take hormesis. So tonight I hope you've taken something away that gives you some prep. Uh, you guys are an amazing church, led by amazing pastors. You're lucky to be here. Love you all. Thank you. Thank you.